0: Ah, there you are. Come. The campfire is burning well. There's a fine log for you to sit on. And the moonlight peaks low through the autumn boughs. The tradition of fireside ghost stories is thought to be nearly as ancient and essential to our species as speech itself. And it is in this primeval tradition that I will share a story of my own. These days... Some few listeners may know me as Van Garaut, the voice of Charno Bells, but there was a time just a few years ago when I was Private Garot, U.S. Army Infantry. I served as a simple foot soldier during the Allied liberation of Italy. Other writers of talent far greater than my own can express the kaleidoscope of emotions and experiences of that time. I will let their brilliant and soulful words speak for me on the complex subjects of soldiering and liberating. I would share only a personal story, a simple soldier's story, a campfire ghost story. I was assigned to a reserve battalion, mostly keeping the frontline units supplied with food, fuel and ammunition, though we did occasionally see action usually when called upon to reinforce the forward lines, but also in the odd skirmish or partisan action. It was in this capacity as partisan support that the first of my two truly weird experiences during my service happened. Our little platoon had been somewhat depleted as some of our guys had gotten called up to fill out front line units. We were seven plus our lieutenant when this happened. Only eight of us. Well, one gray morning, we received orders to clear out and assess an old, sprawling country estate some hours' drive to the southwest. At noon, we struck out in two jeeps, bouncing and rocking along artillery-parked gravel or dirt roads under a light drizzle. Still, what a fine way to soldier, we joked, imagining we might soon be laying around in some wealthy family's vacant estate, drinking their wine and sleeping in their plush beds. That was not how it was. To begin with, the place had clearly been left to fall into disrepair long before the war began. It had once been the pride of some family of influence, no doubt, but the lives of most Italians had known upheaval and change for the better part of a century by then. The things we saw were there. The estate... Grand and sprawling as it was, was in an abject state. A choking mass of ropey vines and weird, oily-leafed creepers had poured over the walls and pulled the gatehouse to its present mad-leaning angles. The two wings of the tall iron gate, too, had been rent asunder by overgrowth, the stout bars bent and warped by the relentless constrictive action of the vines. The surrounding acreage had long since gone to seed, and even the gravel-stone driveway was now nearly a quarter mile of waist-high, thatchy grassland, flanked on either side by once-proud cedar trees. No bird song or cricket chirp sounded from the vast land before us, and there seemed to me over all that estate a held breath, veiling latent menace. Weapons at the ready, we made our approach cautiously. Sergeant Freeman and Lieutenant Garner directing us with hand signals only. Private Llewellyn and I walked point, scanning constantly for booby traps. L.T. Garner watched the estate house through binoculars, anxious for the least sign of movement or glint at a second-story window. Alas, no traps, no movement within, Upon reaching the broad, cherry-wood double doors, gorgeous with filigreed arabesque, we did find signs of somewhat recent occupancy, however. On the flagstone patio, a few 792 and two 9mm shell casings told us that Fritz had been there at some point, and the bullet holes in the windows, window frames, and shutters told us they'd been firing into the house from out front. We walked in pairs out along the exterior walls, but it wasn't five seconds before Jones gasped out, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. A terrible thing had happened there, involving a wall, a pistol, and a single bullet. Though the stucco retained grim evidence of the event, no body or remains were present to our uneasy relief. We continued to skirt the huge house's boundary then, overrun with ivy, windows broken or missing, shutters hanging at mad angles or broken away altogether. The layout of the massive place was roughly three sides of a square, with the back opening out onto the once princely vineyards and olive orchards that had long since gone to riot. The space within the square was an incredible courtyard more than a quarter acre in size. All marble fountains, statuary, and meticulous tile work depicting Greco-Roman heroes and fabulous beasts of the ancient world. Overgrowth was scarcer in the courtyard, and the various fountains plipped merrily with the light droplets that fell into pristine clear basins. No algae, no muck or fallen leaves, I shivered a little, and turned and said to look at a statue seated atop an ornate plinth, worthy of a position of pride in any of the world's great museums. Two huge blocks of marble had been shaped by the hands of a true master of the craft, and joined together marvelously. Towering perhaps ten feet high together, the base depicted a pile of coins, jewels, and ingots. Closer inspection revealed the occasional skull peeking out through the mad tumble-down of gold and gems. No surprise, then, that the dark and awesome King Pluto should surmount this trove of opulence and death, for Roman lore held him as the lord of the treasures of the earth as well as the keeper of the dead. And awesome he was, cloaked and kneeling atop the base, right fist resting on the pile of coins, his left hand holding a single coin absent mindedly by his chest while his hooded gaze was cast to the west. Land of the dying sun, I thought, and shook my head clear of the dark phrase. The chill day's persistent drizzle had worked itself into a light rain by that time, and we began to look meaningfully between the lieutenant and the mansion, willing him to okay a stay under the roof and out of the weather. Well, you can bet we went over every lintel, every casement, every place a guy might have said a tripwire or a booby trap with a fine-toothed comb. In wartime, the moments just before you enter an unfamiliar building are among the most harrowing of the whole experience. Your mind arms the yawning darkness with tripwires, mines, snipers, machine gun emplacements, silent men, pressed flat against the inner door, their knife ready to plunge. <sighs> Nothing. <laughs> Even now, a few years later, I still sigh with relief just remembering. it. There were a few half-burned candles set on overturned empty grape crates, remnants of Nazi rations, and a few empty wine bottles. And that was about all. The exterior of the palatial estate was in pretty rough shape, but it was an absolute mess on the inside. Whole sections of the upper floor had collapsed down in haphazard fashion, creating crazy floor walls at 45-degree angles or hanging like Damocles' blade. The sweeping twin staircases, once splendid, now lay shattered at nines just so many spindles and boards. Naturally, there were leaks, places where the rain was getting in, but it was still a fine improvement over bivouacking in the wet. Again, we swept the place for traps and the like, then hoofed what we needed in from the jeeps. Being the platoon's radio man, it fell to me to get the LT an open channel to report in. But chasing a signal was a lost cause. Try as I might, the heavy weather and the remoteness of the estate combined to render our radio out of commission. No matter, we thought. We just need to get word to our partisan contacts tomorrow and give them the all-clear for staging operations out of the estate as an informal base. As for this evening, all we needed to do was break open some rations, set up a watch and overnighted in the dilapidated ruins of grandeur. Not long into the G.I. banquet, Fry and Strode came in soaking wet, with Strode carrying another fruit crate. As he walked, a pretty jingle could be heard from the crate, and the two young men cracked mischievous smiles. Wine. They'd found a way into the wine cellar, while searching the place, Sergeant Freeman grunted something heavy-sounding, Fry and Strode's smiles faltered, and all eyes turned to Lieutenant Garner. The LT narrowed his gaze at the two eighteen-year-olds, then huffed a funny sort of half-snort and looked away into the raining dark. In the bodily vernacular of Lieutenant of Infantry Solomon Douglas Garner, Jr., that was as near an AOK as young bloods like those two were likely to get. Bedrolls were laid out, a watch rotation was set, and two bottles of the estate's vintage were uncorked. A few guys were quietly playing cards. Well, between hands, Sergeant Freeman said, Maybe it's just the fact my tongue don't remember Dolan from Dishwater, but this wine is a rocket, all right. The other fellows playing at cards with the sergeant agreed, Llewellyn offering a tin cup to the lieutenant. Garner tilted a slight nod to the grape crate beside him and turned his attention back to the maps and code charts that he studied like tools of divination. I declined when Louis offered to pour some off for me. Some combination of unease in the place and mistrust of its bounty made me say no before I'd even formed the thought. Good, kind-hearted, private Isaac Llewellyn knew me well enough to read whatever was in my voice and take me at my word. The rest drank some. The young bloods got just a little high, and our small semi-platoon had a quietly merry night before we began to turn in. L.T. had me on first watch, and that suited me fine. As the men slid into sleep one by one, I looked out on the rain-dark courtyard and thought about home. Two hours on, I slipped quietly to St. John's bedroll and lightly gripped his forearm until I saw he was fully awake. I handed him the watch, and we threw each other our customary hand jive before I slid gratefully into my bedroll and drifted down into sleep with the syncopated rhythm of the rain. I woke in the dark, Unsure of the time, a dream-blurred haze of undefined anxiety clouded my mind. So keyed up I could almost imagine I heard whispers, or... Wait. I held my breath and cupped a hand to my ear. The Worm's Banner, now a lost son of younger soil. Count nine letters in the Julian pattern. Fever rode your back when she shuddered alone. The lieutenant? What? The rain had throttled back to a drizzle again, and I saw that Garner was standing just out on the courtyard's marble, leaning in close to. Who was that on watch? Jones? No, Llewellyn. And he was nodding along patiently with whatever bizarre. what? Code phrases? Whatever it was, the LT was whispering. Waves of lead under dead breath cloud. The under-king so loves the second child. Hearken to the water in your walls. As he went on, Llewellyn gave a low, mm, and I dimly saw that his eyes were shut. Asleep then, on his feet with the lieutenant, what, spell-casting? My breath hitched in my throat as I struggled to understand what I was witnessing. In confusion and, yes, fear, I reached slowly and silently for my sidearm. No sooner had I gripped it than I heard Lieutenant Garner's mad whisper right beside my ear. Orphan of the lake! ''No, no,'' I stammered, ''Eadry, do you have your mother's eyes?'' ''His mother's eyes, his blood all dies, alone he's lured by the other's lies. The lieutenant was still standing out in the courtyard with Llewellyn perhaps five yards from me, yet his weird voice was at my ears. He turned his head just enough to fix his right eye on me sidewise, and I saw a venomous sheen in his gaze. All around me the five sleeping men groaned in unison, and there seemed to be a noxious dissonance buzzing in my brain. I tightened my grip on the forty-five as I struggled to my feet. "'What happens here tonight is not for you, orphan. "'Drink the wine and leave to me the undreaming. "'You and I cannot break the chain of action and consequence, "'but we can accommodate one another.'" It was so hard to think with that buzzing and and the groaning. The pistol felt so heavy in my hand, impossible to keep holding strength gone from my legs, I sort of half knelt on my bedroll, letting go of the forty-five. Just within arm's reach, maybe half a bottle of the estate's vintage stood on a crate, cork loose. Drink the wine, orphan from the lake, and wake with heart untroubled. I was always this one's end. That... Terrible, shining eye was on me, hypnotic as the snakes in fables. I took that bottle in hand and pulled the cork. Without a second thought, I drank. How to describe the taste? Aromatic, subtle, complex. No. No, it tasted like looking at a Monet or Van Gogh. It tasted like listening to songbirds in late May. It tasted... Like falling in love. The thing in the lieutenant watched me drink deeply, then turned back to Llewellyn as I felt myself drifting into a delicious, dreamy haze. I roused at the sound of rustling and saw that the platoon was waking up around me. It was actually sunny outside, maybe all 700 hours. I got up to go relieve myself outside and saw that the LT was asleep. Unheard of. I caught Sergeant Freeman's eye and pointed at the lieutenant's bedroll quizzically. Freeman grunted and gave a dismissive shrug, so I went outside. When I was through, I came back in and went to Lieutenant Garner's bedroll, kneeling beside him. Lieutenant. Hey, um, LT. Lieutenant Garner, it wasn't until I laid a hand on his shoulder and shook him lightly that he woke up. His eyes, though, I saw right away that something was deeply wrong. You see it sometimes in guys who survive assaults or all-night shelling, fighting through towns. Some part of the mind retreats in the face of all that chaos and thunder The stress on a body of keeping it at absolute highest alert for days on end. It burns something out sometimes. The lieutenant looked at me, blinking slowly. Neither the poison sheen of the night's madness, nor the confident light of his sure and skillful intellect shone now from Lieutenant Garner's eyes. Just that flat, dull look. Llewellyn was nowhere to be found, and you can bet we looked everywhere. Sergeant Freeman said he took off in the night. Some guys can't handle the war, and on like that. When I asked what he thought about the lieutenant, he said Garner was just fighting off a cold, bound to happen after a night sleeping in the chill and rain. I started to tell the sergeant about what I'd seen in the middle of the night when I saw in his face that he needed these, tidy, sensible explanations right now. So I laid off. Llewellyn deserted, and the lieutenant had a cold. It was enough to get us home, and that's what counted. The lieutenant never came right, and he was soon shipped home to get whatever care the army thought it could give him. A new lieutenant arrived, and our platoon ended up being sort of folded into another, but I never went out with the unit again. I was so close to the end of my tour that the Major just had me on radio operations for him out of command. Two weeks of that, and I was headed home. I have never forgotten the taste of that wine, and I have never forgotten the faces of those men. Private Isaac Richard Llewellyn, U.S. Army Infantry, has not been seen or heard from since that night. And I trust he never will be.